Well, we are not going to be in Genesis tonight. Uh, we're going to be in the Psalms. What is today? Ash Wednesday. And uh, again, most Baptists don't celebrate things on the liturgical church calendar. Some do. Most don't. But what is Ash Wednesday? What does Ash Wednesday kick off? The season of Lent, uh, 40 days prior to Easter. And then what does Ash Wednesday symbolize? Confession of sin, dealing with sin, believing that, of course, before we can experience uh, a fresh encounter with the Lord, we've got to deal with sin, sin in our temple, our personal temple, because the Lord does not fill dirty vessels. And so I think it's a good reminder today to deal with sin and continue to leading up to Easter At Easter, of course, celebrating the resurrection of Christ. But we're not going to experience his presence and power in our lives uh, the way we should if our hearts are filled with sin. And probably the, the classic text in the scripture of somebody dealing with sin would, of course, be Psalm 51. Psalm 51. And so let's read that together tonight. Psalm 51. Uh, it says, to the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. Uh, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Psalm 51 is the fourth of seven so-called penitential psalms. The fourth of seven penitential psalms. What is a penitential psalm? Those are psalms in which confession and repentance from personal sin is the focus. Uh, Notice it's addressed to the choir master and in addition... Uh, To this more usual information, the heading also includes what? It includes a historical marker that helps set this psalm in context. It's when Nathan the prophet went in to David after he had gone in to Bathsheba. Now, if you want to know the background of that story, the background would be 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. 
David is guilty of adultery. And then after adultery, he's guilty of what? Murder. And murder of the worst sort. Premeditated murder. Imagine having to live with yourself after something like that. Now, after being confronted by Nathan the prophet, David finally deals with his sin. You know, I think that's a sad commentary on sin as well. Too often, we do not deal with sin until it's become known. It's better to to confess sin and repent of it as soon as God brings it to your attention. Now, Psalm 51 is the record of how David went before God and how he sought cleansing and forgiveness. I'm glad Psalm 51 is in the Bible. Because it helps us deal with our own condition and our own sin. And that's important to do even for our prayer life. Uh, Psalm 66 says what? If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. And then Isaiah 59 says, Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear. But your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. So clearly, folks, sin is something that you and I need to desperately deal with. If we want to experience God in our lives and even experience answered prayer. First of all, I want you to see tonight that we are to appeal to God's grace. Appeal to God's grace. He says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Now, folks, there's a number of words, both in the Hebrew and in the Greek, that speak of sin. I'll only mention a couple of them, but probably the most common biblical word is harmatia, the way we would bring it over into English. Harmatia, H-A-R-M-A-T-I-A, harmatia. Harmatia is a word that means missing the mark. You've probably heard a preacher before you probably heard me at some point give the illustration of a bow and arrow, an archer taking out a bow and arrow, and he pulls the, the string back, the bow back, and he's aiming towards the bullseye, and he lets go of the arrow, and he misses the whole target altogether. That's harmatia, missing the mark, going astray. And then there's another Greek word for transgression, uh, para. Bases, the way we would bring it over into English. P-A-R-A-B-A-S-I-S. And this refers to a going aside or an overstepping. It's even worse than harmatia. Worse in intent, that is. Because you know the law of God and you deliberately set it aside, you transgress it, and you choose your way over God's way. And then there's yet another word in the Bible that's used in Romans 3.23. Paul uses a form of the word husteros, H-U-S-T-E-R-O-S which refers to a falling behind or a lacking. And what's Paul say in Romans 3.23 that we have fallen behind in or fallen short of? God's glory. We fall short of God's glory. Now again, there's a number of other words And you might be tempted to ask the question, why are there so many words in the original languages that deal with sin? And how would we answer that? So many sins, exactly. So many complexities to sin. So many different nuances and angles that sin takes. But folks, the same Bible 
<clears throat> that points out our sin also helps us deal with it when we commit sin. Right? In the Word of God, God has addressed the problem of human sin. And that's what Psalm 51 is all about. Psalm 51 is the heart cry of David after he has sinned a very dark sin. And what Psalm 51 is, it's a prayer of confession. What's 1 John 1, 9 say? Very good, yes. To say the same thing about sin that God says. If we confess, and that's what it means, confession. To say the same thing about our sinful condition that God says. We know that God is filled with grace. And notice what David does. David appeals to that aspect of God's character. God is filled with loving kindness. David says here, have mercy on me according to your steadfast love. Now that word steadfast love, that's one of the richest words in the Bible in the Hebrew. The way we would bring that over into English would be H-E-S-E-D. Hesed, sometimes because of Hebrew being a guttural language and you, you almost have to sound like you're spitting when you say it. Uh, you'll, they'll put C-H, chesed. It's kind of, a, you, you kind of got to have that guttural sound to say it right. But it's a rich word. One of the richest words in the Hebrew. Steadfast love, steadfast mercy, covenant love, loving kindness. There's no one English word that can capture everything about that word. And David is going before God on the basis of God's hesed, his hesed love. David is recognizing here that he's not upheld his end of the covenant. Now, folks, how many times have we failed to live the Christian life or to be a good witness? God's always faithful, but we're not. And so David is essentially appealing to God that God would uphold his end of the covenant regardless of how far short David has fallen. And again, he's appealing to this nature in God, this nature of God's hesed love, his covenant love, his loving kindness. Psalm 103 says that God has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he himself knows our frame. He is mindful that we are but dust. Aren't you glad that God has loving kindness? Steadfast loving kindness and you know the examples in scripture are so many we we couldn't quote them all but I mean I think right off in the Bible with Adam and Eve the fact that after Adam and Eve sinned and they were hiding themselves what did God do God went looking for them saying where are you I think also of the book of Judges. Seven cycles of sin and judgment. Is God patient? You better believe He is. Seven cycles. They would get in trouble. They would cry out to God. God would send them a deliverer. They would be set free from an oppressor. And then right after they'd been set free, they would get comfortable again. And when they would get comfortable, they would get complacent. And then the same old patterns of sin would set in again. And then God would discipline them. God would judge them. They would begin suffering again with another oppressor. 
And then God would send them yet another judge, another deliverer. Seven cycles of this. Again, God is patient. And he's full of steadfast love and mercy. God's compassion became the basis of why we are to have such compassion towards people when people sin against us. In Matthew 18, Jesus talks to his disciples about this. That, you know, Peter wants to have a bookkeeper's mentality. How many times should I forgive my brother? Seven times? And what's Jesus say? No, seven times. Seventy. The point is, it, or the point is not... 490 times and then you stop. But what was Jesus' point? Unlimited. Unlimited. So again, David says here, Lord, according to your steadfast love, your your chesed, your covenant love, your loving kindness, have mercy. Look at these phrases. Have mercy, blot out, wash away, cleanse. The point is we need to go to God with our sin. We don't need to hide. Before we can ever have a fresh encounter with God, we've got to deal with the sin in our hearts. Not just as an individual, even corporately. Revelation 2 and 3, those seven churches, five of the seven were being called on to deal with some kind of sin in their midst if they were going to go forward as a church. And it's only the grace of God that allows us to do so. Secondly tonight, I want you to see that you're to acknowledge your guilt Acknowledge your guilt, beginning there in verse 3. What does David say there? He points out that it is before me. He says, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. A cover-up doesn't help anybody because God knows what's in your heart. Jesus said the very hairs on your head are all numbered. Now, Larry, I guess God doesn't have to count quite as many with you, does he? <laughs> Not quite as many hairs on the head. Or Larry, both Larrys. You what? Just preach to that side. Quit meddling, right? But, I mean, if God even knows the very hairs on your head, do you think he knows your heart? Absolutely. He knows all about your sin. Our propensity to sin ought to humble us before God. Jesus told a parable about a Pharisee and a publican. The publican would not even lift his head up to heaven but beat on his breast and said, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And the Pharisee, on the other hand, proud, said, God, I'm, I'm glad I'm not like that publican over there. I do this and I do that and... God, you ought to be happy to have me on your side. And the scripture says it's the publican who went home cleansed and justified. I hope your sin is before you. You acknowledge it and you humbly go before God. In addition to saying it's before me, David says there in verse 4, against thee and thee only have I sinned? Now that's a very interesting statement, isn't it? Because who all had David sinned against? He'd sinned against Bathsheba. He'd sinned against Uriah. All of Israel. Sure. Absolutely. So he had, he, had sinned, he had sinned against the whole nation. And he had sinned against his own body. You know, Paul says in 1 Corinthians that sexual sin is against our own bodies. So he had sinned against his own body. He had sinned, he'd sinned against the nation. He had sinned against Bathsheba. He would sinned against Uriah. And yet he says, against thee and thee only have I sinned. Why do you think that phrase shows up like that? Why didn't he acknowledge everybody? 
I think it's because he's acknowledging God is the giver of the law. God is the one who has set the standards of what's right and wrong. That being the case, God is ultimately the one that David has sinned against. David knows he's broken the covenant stipulations. The covenant conditions. Exodus 20, the law points out what? Adultery is a sin. Murder is a sin. And David has broken both of them. Since it's God's law, God is the lawgiver. David says, against you have I sinned. Society doesn't set the standards. God sets the standards. And boy, we need to remember that today too, don't we? We don't just do something because everybody's doing it and society says it's okay. Society now says such and such is okay or such and such is okay. No, God is the lawgiver. David goes on to say, God is just when he judges. There in verse 4. He says, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. God's judgments against us are perfectly accurate. He knows our hearts. He knows our motives. He knows our sins. The lost man will not be able to stand before God on the day of judgment and say, God, you don't know my situation. So God, you're not being fair. God does know. And God is completely just when he judges. God cannot be anything but just. And so he is just when he judges. This is a statement about the character of God. God always does right. He points out in verse 5, in sin, as he's acknowledging that his sin is ever before him, in sin I was conceived. I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother did conceive me. We come into this world with a sin nature. Psychologists and sociologists try to blame everything on other conditions. Maybe it's your environment. And I don't want to downplay how important proper friends are, proper environment. But folks, environment and associations do not go far enough to explain why people do what they do. People do what they do. Why? Because we are sinners by nature and by choice. We've become such a no-fault society. But we are at fault. In sin I was conceived. What's he talking about there? Corrupt human nature. What do theologians refer to that as? Original sin. Children are not innocent. Even my grandson. <laughs> That's right. Anybody with kids or grandkids knows they are not innocent. Original sin is that, is that Adam. Sin is a part of us. Some speak of the, the federal headship explanation. That Adam stood at the head of the human race. Adam was mankind. Adam, he was not only an individual, he was mankind. And so when Adam sinned, man sinned. We were in his loins. Likewise, as far as redemption, Christ stands at the head. So as Paul says in Romans 5, we are either in Adam or in Christ. If you're in Adam, you die. If you're in Christ, you have his life. Now, folks, this is even why some church traditions 
baptized infants. They, they believe that they're baptizing the infant and getting them free of original sin. That's the Roman Catholic view. That's not the Presbyterian view. It's the Roman Catholic view that they're baptizing the infant to remove original sin. Presbyterians have a different motive. The sign of the covenant in the Old Testament was what? Circumcision. Sign of the covenant in the New Testament is what? Baptism. So the sign of the covenant in the Old Testament was to be administered before the child could even know. When was Abraham to circumcise Isaac? When he was a child. And and through the Old Testament, when they were eight days old. So they administered the sign of the covenant before the child could decide one way or the other themselves. And so that's why some say they baptize infants because they're administering the sign of the covenant even before the child knows. Uh, so different than, different than Roman Catholics. Okay? Different motive altogether. But Roman Catholics, they, they think they're removing original sin. Now, Baptists, of course, believe that while children are not innocent, they're just not accountable Until they understand they've broken the law of God. But again what's being pointed out here is that sin is not simply some weird anomaly that happens to us only occasionally in life. After the fall of man in Genesis 3, sin is a very part of us. A very part of each one of us. Man does what he does because at the core of his being, he's corrupt and he is in need of conversion. That's what David is acknowledging. A man said to his preacher one time, said, Preacher, I don't know if I can swallow all of this sin stuff. And the preacher said, You don't have to swallow it. It's already inside you. He acknowledges in verse 6 that God is after something that man on his own cannot deliver. God is after truth in the inmost part. God is after truth and righteousness and holiness. We can't offer God that. We don't have it to offer. And that's why without the cross of Jesus Christ, we're sunk because it's at the cross that God has dealt with our sin once and for all. David goes on in verse 6, and I I need to explain this one a little bit more, to confess that he was, you're not going to see this initially, okay, but that he was all damned up. Verse 6, Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. There's an interesting analogy going on here. According to Dr. Gerald Wilson, who's professor of Old Testament and Old Testament and Hebrew at Azuzu Pacific University. In the Old Testament, the Philistines plugged up or dammed up the wells dug by Abraham. You remember that? They were jealous. They were jealous of the growing wealth and influence of of Isaac. Later on also, what did Hezekiah do? Hezekiah plugged up the visible water sources of the land and diverted their waters to hidden reservoirs to prevent the enemy from being able to get to them. And so by way of analogy, here in Psalm 51, here in verse 6, David is acknowledging that he was stopped up like those water sources so that truth in the inward part was not Flowing freely. 
Truth in his inward being was not flowing freely. And so he is unplugging the inward barriers and he's allowing the streams of honest transparency to run so that truth can be in the inward being once again. As Dr. Wilson points out, from the English we don't get from the From the Hebrew text, it's clear. From the English, it's not. But David was all plugged up. He was damned up when he was not transparent before God. But now he's he's opened up. He's transparent before God. Well, thirdly, what does David do? He asks for forgiveness. Verse 1, he says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. And then you go over to verse 7. He says, Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Uh, Hide your face from my sins. Blot out my iniquities. Verse 10, he says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and cast me not away from your presence. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. I don't care if you are in the Old Testament or in the New Testament. The Bible affirms that apart from the grace of God, there's nothing good in us. We are incapable of doing ultimate good. I say ultimate good. What I mean by that is that I realize in the eyes of man, we can do some pretty good things. Even lost people do. Even lost people do some benevolent things. They feed the poor. They clothe the naked. They build hospitals for the sick. Good things are done. But that's not what I'm calling ultimate good. By ultimate good, I'm I'm meaning good in the sight of God that can justify us in God's sight. We're incapable of being able to do that. There is nothing we can do to establish our own standing before God. God's got to be the one. To provide the way to do that. He did that in the Old Testament. Through the sacrificial system. And what did that point forward to? To the cross. And based on God doing this. Based on God's mercies. What is David asking? David's saying God blot out my transgressions. It's like he's saying God just remove the record of my sins from your books. There are several places in the Bible that refer to God keeping books on us. Psalm 56, 8. Psalm 56, 8. You have taken account of my wanderings, put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then Daniel 7 verses 9 and 10. I kept looking until thrones were set up and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was like white wool and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat and the books were opened. Malachi 3.16. Malachi 3.16. Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another. And the Lord gave attention and heard it. And a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and who esteem his name. And then in Revelation 20 verse 12. John says, And I saw the dead, the great and small, standing before the throne, 
And books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. So what's David saying? Lord, the record of my sins in your book. Blot them out. In verse 2, he says, wash me from my iniquity. It's like his, his sin is a stain on his soul. He's saying, God, just take your soap and wash it away. And how does God do that? Through shed blood. Without the shedding of blood, Hebrews 9 says, there is no remission of sin. And we know in the new covenant that that blood is whose blood? Jesus. Verse 7, he says, purify me with hyssop. Hyssop was a plant that they would dip in the blood and they would sprinkle on the altar. Verse 8, he says, make me to hear joy and gladness. What had sin done? Sin had robbed him of joy. In fact, turn back with me to Psalm 32. Psalm 32, I want you to see this. Psalm 32. Psalm 32, beginning in verse 1, says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Now, here's here's what I want you to see, verse 3. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. So what had sin done to him? What had his unconfessed sin done to him? He's he's physically ill. He has no joy anymore. His body was wasting away. Day and night God's hand was heavy upon him. His vitality, his strength was drained away. That's what unconfessed sin and unrepented of sin had done to David. It had almost destroyed his life. It was like bones being broken. A painful condition and a crippling condition unless it's dealt with. And so he's asking God to mend him and heal him of his sins so that there can be joy again. Folks, some people are miserable. Because of unrepented of sin. They're miserable because of sin. Verse 10, he says, created me a clean heart. Again in verse 10, renew a steadfast spirit within him. Within me, verse 11, do not cast me away from thy presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. What's David probably thinking of there? What happened with Saul, right? You'll remember that God took his hand off of King Saul. And so David is pleading that God will not do that with him. Does God remove his spirit from us in the new covenant? No, we're sealed. We're sealed by the Holy Spirit. But can God remove his hand off of you in some way so that you lose your testimony and lose your influence and lose your Christian strength and power? Can that happen? Yes. Yes. And he's saying, God, blot out my transgressions and don't let that happen. Don't take your hand off of me. And then verse 12, restore to me the joy of thy salvation. Now what does he say will happen when this takes place? Look at verse 13. Then I will teach transgressors thy ways and sinners will be converted to you. David is saying I'll have a new chapter in my testimony. Through my testimony others will find hope.
Again, as Dr. Wilson says, Gerald Wilson, as long as David had plugged up the, the well and hidden his sin, no one benefited. But when he confessed his sin and the water of spiritual vitality flowed again, David was able to teach sinners God's ways. Now look at verses 16 and 17. Understand that outward acts of sacrifice cannot do what needs to be done. God is after more than the outward. In the aftermath of 70 A.D., the Jews have been taught this. What happened in 70 A.D.? The temple was destroyed. With the temple destroyed... What, what is it that ceased? Sacrifices. Now, under the leadership of Yohanan uh, ben Zechai, I'll get it said right, the sages began to develop plans to enable Judaism to adjust to its new circumstances without a temple. And without sacrifices being offered again. In the face of the loss of that, uh, Yohanan and his followers determined that sacrifice could be replaced by pivotal acts of devotion, prayer, fasting, and the giving of alms. So essentially they came around to what Psalm 51 is teaching. It is the inner relationship of the believer to God that gives value to outward acts. Outward acts alone do nothing. Now notice one more result, verse 18. David is acknowledging something powerful here. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. As king of Israel, as long as his sin is still there, it's affecting the nation. But when God forgives his sin, he's able to bless his people. There's a lesson there, isn't there? Our sin can adversely affect other people. We think it's private. And it may not be. Some sin in your life that you think is private, it may not be at all. There's some lessons I want us to glean from this tonight. Number one, if it were not for God's nature, there would be no hope for any of us. If it were not for God's nature, there would be no hope for any of us. God is a merciful God full of grace, full of loving kindness. Secondly, our sin will not be dealt with until we own up to our condition. Our sin will not be dealt with until we own up to our condition. Thirdly, God's judgment against the human race is accurate and fair. God's judgment against the human race is accurate and fair. Fourthly, God will discipline his children until they return to him. God will discipline his children until they return to him. And then lastly, Christians need to be a witness to others of God's work of grace in their lives. Christians need to be a witness to others of God's work of grace in their lives. You know, we talk about the wages of sin, don't we, which is death. But let's think about the value of sin. 
And I, and I hate to even put it that way, the value of sin, because inherently there is no value to sin. I hope you understand that. But again, how's this psalm ending? What will be the value in David confessing this sin and being forgiven? What will be the value in this experience? His life will be an impact on others. His life will be an impact on others. And so if there is any value to sin, which again inherently there's not. But you understand what I'm saying. When God deals with it, when, yeah, when God deals with you, the value is you're able to be a testimony of God's grace to others. They can see what's happened to you through your sin and your repentance and your confession and your restoration. They see God's thumbprints of grace and mercy in you and it's an encouragement to them that they too can be forgiven. So Christians need to be a witness to others of God's work of grace in their lives. Folks, let's don't forget the hymn. The hymn that says there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Lose all their guilty stains. Amen? Amen. Amen to that. I want to ask you to bow with me for a moment, just in silence. And think about your own heart condition before God. Is there sin that God has been dealing with you about? Maybe God has been making you miserable the way David was. God has been convicting you and disciplining you. I want to encourage you to appeal to God's grace. He is a God of loving kindness. Acknowledge your guilt and ask for forgiveness and renewal. If that sin remains in your life, it's going to rob you of a certain degree of spiritual vitality. And you're not, gonna, you're not going to grow as a believer. As I said at the beginning tonight, God does not feel dirty vessels. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. The Bible says we are to be set apart for the Lord. We are to be sanctified. We are to be holy even as God is holy. There is to be a family resemblance like Father like child. Is that true in your life? Even if there's some sin that would not ruin your testimony... I dare say already you found that it has robbed you of joy and strength. Again, acknowledge it. Confess it. Agree with God over it. Agree with God. God, I have missed the mark 
I have strayed. I've transgressed your standards and your law. I've come short of your glory. Ask Him to give you wisdom and strength to repent of it. Sometimes it's very hard to turn away from something. We need a strength beyond just simply what we possess on our own. Ask God to give you that strength. And folks, I want to remind you that when God works in us, it is to spill over onto others. There is that corporate nature to our faith that we are to have a positive impact on other people. We're not to be an island unto ourselves. Is there a sin against a brother or sister that you need to go to and follow that pattern in Matthew 18? Has that happened with someone? That you need to go to that individual personally, privately? Lest you think sin is no big deal, I want you to remember Jesus died on the cross for sin. If it's not that serious, I dare say he would not have even come in the incarnation to deal with it. The incarnation is a testimony. To how seriously God takes human sin.